This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 22, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Clashes between police and protesters in Ferguson, Missouri, have consumed much of the last two weeks. Today, Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice, answered questions from Twitter about the ongoing events in Ferguson, Missouri. Graciela Narunda asks, was sending in the National Guard a necessary action to recover peace or an act of desperation which escalated tensions? To me, it looked like another act of political desperation. Obviously, it was a mess down in Ferguson, and I think we've got all the officials down there scrambling around, trying to make themselves look good, trying to improve the situation, but a lot of finger-pointing, obviously, between the police chiefs, highway patrol, the governor, the attorney general. Um, So to me, things were bad, and uh, the governor was looking weak. He was being criticized in the press, so it looked like an act of uh, desperation to me. Reporters kept calling me and asking me, what do you think of this you know, what do you think the impact of the National Guard is going to be? And I said, it's really impossible to tell because we didn't know at the time they were calling me anyway, you know, what their role was going to be. We didn't know how many troops were going to show up. We didn't know how they were going to be deployed. We didn't know what the chain of command was going to be, whether they were going to be reporting to uh, the police or whether the police were now going to be reporting to the National Guard. So it, it was quite the mess. All right. So uh, we have another question here. This is from Jim Bavard, at Jim Bavard on Twitter. Uh, Tim, have you heard any reports of the feds pressuring local and state officials to delay disclosing info on the shooting? I have not heard any information uh, about that. Uh, Jim Bovard, by the way, had a great article just the other day in USA Today when Eric Holder, our attorney general, was going to Ferguson. Uh, and, you know, so often the narrative is that the federal officials come riding to the rescue to kind of solve problems at the local level. And Jim Bovard had an excellent article in the USA Today reminding people that he was a U.S. attorney here in the District of Columbia for a number of years. And we had a lot of controversial shootings right here in the district. And did Eric Holder, what was his record with respect to overseeing accountability for those shootings? And it was a very poor record indeed. And Jim laid that out very well. And we linked to his article on our police misconduct website. A lot of details about the the shooting that set off all of this uh, are still unknown and won't be known for some time. But probably won't have any indictments, if any are forthcoming, uh, until maybe September and October. But uh, what we know about the police response, uh, well, what can you say about it broadly? Well, first on the shooting, uh, let's talk about that for just a moment, because I think what's important here is that the we should like address this kind of in chronological order, because first we had the shooting. And then the community started to turn out in protest. And that's why the media descended on Ferguson was because people were protesting. And then the media started to shine a light on the Ferguson Police Department. And then things started to spiral downward from there. But let's go back to the shooting a little bit and why the community uh, turned out in protest. And I think the important point that needs to be made here is that if somebody like Governor Rick Perry, if he had a son that was unarmed and was shot down six times in the street by the Texas Rangers, we could be sure that there would be a vigorous 
investigation into the circumstances of that shooting. But when it involves somebody like an African-American or somebody who has no political connections, sometimes these acts of brutality, uh, allegations of police misconduct, they kind of are not taken very seriously and there's not an investigation. And so when somebody is actually shot and killed, uh, that's when I think things began to boil over in Ferguson because behind every shooting, questionable shooting, I should say, there are maybe dozens, hundreds of acts of police misconduct or brutality that were not investigated. But when somebody is actually killed, that's when I think things boiled over. And what people are want, obviously, we don't know the merits of of the case yet. It's either an act of self-defense or, or an act of manslaughter or murder. We don't know. A jury will probably have to sort this out over time. But what the people were protesting is that, you know, his body was left in the street for several hours. Um, and I think they were demanding that there be an impartial invest investigation into the circumstances of the shooting. And that's why they turned out to protest. That's when the media descended on Ferguson to cover those protests. And then we got the now we get to the police response to the protests, which was, of course, that very militaristic, confrontational and adversarial approach, which then put things right on the wrong track as far as like setting up this adversarial uh, situation between the police department and the members of the community that were coming out to protest. All right. We have a question from uh, Leandra B. She's asked thoughts on international pressure on U.S. related to civil rights. Should the international community have a place? No, I don't see any role for uh, international pressure uh, in these circumstances. And in fact, uh, we don't even want, uh, uh, like Jim Bovard was asking earlier about the federal role, we really want to uh, try to keep the federal government out of this as well. It is useful uh, probably, you know, to have the FBI coming in and like overseeing things, but we want the, the federal government to kind of come in as a, as a last resort. This is something that the local authorities should be handled. Um, I think they, they should have identified the police officer right away. I think the governor has made a mistake in not appointing a special prosecutor to investigate this shooting. Uh, the local uh, prosecutor, uh, there seems to be good reasons not to have much confidence in the, in the work that he's doing at the uh, the only good thing is that uh, it's got so much national attention now, uh, so the pressure is on. But I would prefer to have seen the governor appoint a special prosecutor in this case and keep the Justice Department and President Obama and his administration out of this uh, matter. Is it too late to appoint a special prosecutor? It's not too late, but it would have been better had it been done early on. Okay. Uh, and that brings me to a question. Uh, use of force reports filed by police. There are there seems to be a fairly high standard for even filing those reports in many police departments. That's right. Um, one of the reasons that we started the uh, National Police Misconduct Reporting Project at Cato was to try to get more attention on police misconduct in the, in the United States because no one else is really tracking this stuff. And when policing in the United States is very decentralized, we have close to uh, 18,000 police departments in the United States and their records as far as like reporting 
shootings, reporting acts of brutality like you were talking about. There's varying standards, and it's hard to get a good measurement um, on police misconduct in this country, and that's why we started the project in order to draw more attention to the problem and also to try to develop some measuring sticks so that we could tell whether the problem is getting better or getting worse. There is, I think, a natural inclination uh, among a lot of people who are perhaps law and order Republican types who say, look, this is, this is about uh, we're concerned about property damage, uh, an overwhelming show of force. Uh, may be appropriate. I mean, it's almost pageantry in a in a way that uh, this massive police response with militarized weapons occurred. Right. Well, obviously, uh, uh, the people who are causing the property damage down there are breaking laws, and they are subject to arrest. And uh, I hope many of them were apprehended and, and punished. But I think. What we're talking about is the broader trend of local police departments acquiring military weapons. Uh, the images coming out of Ferguson were really shocking, like a sniper setting up on top of an armored vehicle. That's an image I won't soon forget. Um, shooting tear gas uh, at uh, protesters, actually going into the backyards of people's homes. And uh, there was that police officer just the other day who uh, pointed his gun at people who were not presenting any threat whatsoever. I was glad to see that he was relieved of duty. That's what people are looking for, is that when officers step out of line and do stuff like that, that the higher-ups act to discipline them. And uh, that's that's what I think people want to see more of. Patrick Hannaford asks a question here, is militarization of police a problem unique to the U.S., excluding dictatorships, or has it occurred in other Western democracies? I don't. I haven't seen the problem discussed with respect to other Western democracies. And uh, just to back up a second, the, what we're talking about is several trends that are underway at the same time. We're talking about local police departments acquiring military weaponry from the Pentagon. Now we're talking about M16s, grenade launchers, armored personnel carriers, and camouflage uniforms, which nobody can seem to think what how that helps the police in an American city or suburban environment. So the paramilitary units have been created. They're not just in the big cities anymore. They've spread to small towns. The second thing that has happened is uh, the missions for which they are called out. The initial rationale was that we'd have these units for special extraordinary situations that were beyond the, the ability of the ordinary patrolman, like a hostage situation. They've spread way beyond that into more routine policing activity. So you put these two things together, uh, hundreds of these paramilitary units across the country, and then they're not being limited to extraordinary situations, but they're into routine policing activity. And then you can see what we're talking about, what that adds up to. It means paramilitary tactics have taken hold in American policing around the country. And we're talking about violent uh, no-knock raids on people's homes, that these things happen uh, tens of thousands of times a year. And another website we have, or web page, I should say, on uh, the Cato website is something we call the Raid Map, where people can get a better idea as to how often these raids happen. Because sometimes when the police go into, say, the wrong home and somebody is shot and killed, that 
raid will get some attention and people will say, my gosh, I didn't know uh, we had a SWAT team in our community. Uh, and they think it's a tragic uh, incident, but something that's fairly rare. And what we've tried to do is bring all these raids together onto our raid map to demonstrate to people that these things are happening much more frequently than the average person realizes. All right. Uh, a comment here more than a question. Don't forget asset forfeiture when talking about police militarization in Ferguson. What is there a relationship, the clear relationship there? There is a relationship. Where, again, for, for, for viewers who are not familiar, civil asset forfeiture are special laws that allow the police department to seize people's property, cash, land, homes, uh, without having to convict them of a crime. And often uh, the local police departments are able to keep the property that they seize. So it creates an awful incentive for them uh, to go out and grab people's property because they get to keep it themselves. And uh, the connection between civil asset forfeiture and the militarization is sometimes these military equipment is expensive to maintain. So if they go out and seize people's property, they can increase the budget of their local police department so that they can maintain and maybe even purchase more military equipment through the use of civil asset forfeiture. So there is a connection, and, and uh, we've been addressing uh, the problem of civil asset forfeiture with other Cato studies as well. Uh, to what extent have police agencies, and I know Bradley Balco, uh, former Catoite, now at the Washington Post, who wrote Rise of the Warrior Cop recently, uh, presciently, I think. Uh, to what extent are local police agencies using these sort of highly aggressive tactics to serve regular warrants? Yeah, it's becoming all too common, uh, these no-knock raids on people's houses. Um, sometimes you see the footage on television where a police unit will rush up to somebody's home it's one knock on the door, and a few seconds later, they use a battering ram to smash down the front door. They also are throwing flashbang grenades into the windows uh, during these raids, and sometimes there's tragic consequences. A few weeks ago, uh, near Atlanta, uh, one of these flashbang grenades fell into the crib of a toddler who is now in a coma uh, because of, of these raids. Um, the other point that I think needs to be made is that we used to refer to police officers as, as peace officers in this country. But with this paramilitarism, we're getting the opposite effect because these units will roll into a neighborhood during the night, very early in the morning, and they will conduct these violent uh, entries into people's homes, again, with the flashbang grenades. And when you're forcing your way into somebody's homes during these hours, it creates disorder. It creates uh, a violent situation because the homeowners think, my gosh, we're about to be attacked by criminals. And sometimes these people will get their, their guns for self-defense and there will be a shootout between the police and the homeowners. So instead of uh, a, a disorder and the police responding to restore the peace, we have p police units rolling into neighborhoods and creating the violent situations. Tim Lynch is director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.